are here this morning as we bow before you, that we would all come to the place in our lives where we realize that there is nothing sure in this world save your love, your grace, your holiness, and your glory. You will build your church. The gates of hell will not prevent that. You will accomplish your purpose in our lives, in this country, and all across this globe. This morning we are praying for your Holy Spirit to have free reign in our hearts, to speak to us the truth. Strip away everything that is not you today, Father, so that we might hear your clear voice. Thank you for these moments to quiet ourselves and to be reminded that you are God. We ask your blessing on the next moments that will follow. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, folks. You can have a seat. I know you're probably not thinking it this morning, but we live in an incredibly beautiful world. Phil, it's beautiful, man. The white stuff turns to green eventually (laughs) in more ways than one. We do live in a beautiful place, don't we? This is a beautiful part of the country, a beautiful part of the world. We've just come through a very nice fall with all the leaves turning and the colors. I don't know if it's just me because fall is my favorite time of year, but I think the sky is bluer in the fall. It's clear and crisp, and some mornings I come out and I just think, man, this is a gorgeous, gorgeous place that God has made for us to live in. It's very beautiful. But it's also a very painful world, isn't it? I mean, there's war, there's genocide, famine, epidemic. That's not even touching our personal lives. They're afflicted by broken relationships, disease, untimely death, financial problems, rebellious children, interpersonal strife. Despite all of the physical beauty of this world, there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of suffering. Why does God allow this to happen to us? We know that wrong choices have consequences. But often the things that we face in our lives seem to be far beyond what we could ever deserve by any wrong choices that we might have made. We're going to walk through that today. We're going to answer that question. What is God's purpose in our suffering? It's a complex conversation. This is the third week that we've spent on it. And we could spend many more, and we probably will at some point revisit this topic because there are no easy answers. But before we go any further, I want you to cement this in your mind, and we've been talking about this a little bit already. I want you to cement in your mind that God's ways are always good. This is the truth. As my friend Rankin Worldborn says, you've got to wrestle with it before you can rest in it. And that's what we're doing. We're wrestling with it. 
in the hopes that we can rest in it. And we've been learning from the experiences of Joseph. Joseph was Abraham's great-grandson. For those of you that know a little bit about Genesis and the Old Testament and you're doing the calculations of where he fits, Joseph's great-grandson, he's the 11th of Jacob's 12 sons. Remember, God came to Abraham, if you know this story, in Genesis chapter 12, and he said, Abraham, I'm going to make your family a great nation. They're going to multiply. One time he took him outside, and he had him look up at the clear sky, and he said, you see all those stars, Abraham? That's going to be your family, as many as the stars in the sky. And then he gave Abraham one son. (laughs) Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob, twin boys. But God gave his blessing to Jacob and gave Jacob 12 sons. You can do the genealogical math. That's where things really started to take off for Abraham's family. And Joseph was the 11th in the line. And if you were here a couple weeks ago, you know that we walked through the story of Genesis chapter 37 where Joseph's brothers were incredibly jealous of him. And they made a plot to kill him. But their oldest brother, Reuben, kind of stepped in and overruled. And I know this is only marginally better, but it was better. Instead of killing him, they sold him into slavery. Joseph ended up in Egypt, which was a long way from home and a culture that was very different from his, and he became a servant in the house of the captain of the guard, whose name was Potiphar. Potiphar put him in charge of everything that he had. Potiphar didn't even know what was going on in his household because Joseph was just in charge of all of it. Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Joseph. Joseph resisted as the godly young man that he was becoming, that he was. He was falsely accused of assault, and he was thrown into prison. Just when he seemed to be getting a handle on being the man that God wanted him to be. And then all of this still happens. Joseph was beginning to realize that everything that God was doing in his life was about more than just his character. It was a far greater purpose. Through another series of difficulties and disappointments that we don't have time to read through, but you could read sometime at the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph is once again elevated to this incredible position by God. Now he is second in command in the entire nation of Egypt. Pharaoh himself, the ruler of Egypt, plucks Joseph out of prison by God's hand and design, of course, and puts him in charge of everything. God had revealed to Joseph through Pharaoh's dream that there were going to be seven years of incredible bounty and then there were going to be seven years of absolute and utter famine. And Joseph managed the whole preparation for seven years of gathering and stockpiling everything that would be needed so that the nation of Egypt could survive the terrible famine. While the famine spread far beyond Egypt and it spread all the way back to Joseph's homeland 
And one day, Joseph's brothers, the ten older brothers that he had, showed up in Egypt looking to buy food so their families wouldn't starve. When they got there, the gatekeepers to the city said, Oh, you need to go see this guy. He's in charge. And so Joseph's ten brothers, who 22 years before had tried to kill him and instead sold him into slavery, were standing in front of Joseph's throne begging for food. Of course, they had no idea it was Joseph. It had been 22 years. He'd been a 17-year-old boy. Now he was a 39-year-old man. We pick it up there in Genesis 45. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. See, they didn't recognize Joseph, but he knew exactly who they were. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? This is one of those places, there are hundreds of them in the Bible, where just a few words on a page cannot fully describe what must have been happening in that scene. Can you imagine? After 22 years, I'm Joseph! What? What? What are you talking about? Is our father still alive? I'm sure they probably didn't even hear anything that happened after he said, I am Joseph. His brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed. Actually, a better word here might be terrified. They were terrified. At his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, probably with their knees knocking together. And he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, you know, whom you sold into Egypt. And they're like, Oh, we know. We remember exactly what happened. That's why we're so nervous. Verse 5. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Listen, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. We don't have time to plumb the depths and the heights of the roller coaster of emotions that those ten guys were on in the three minutes it took Joseph to say all that. But I'll tell you what leaps out at me when I read it. How could Joseph say those things without bitterness? How could he possibly face these guys after all that they had done? 
And of course, the answer to that question is wrapped up in how he viewed it. In verse 5, he said, notice this, you sold me, but God sent me. Boy, there's a lot in that phrase. What Joseph's brothers had intended for evil and harm and devastation in their brother's life, God was using for his good. Again in verse 7, he says, God sent me. In verse 8, he says it again, it wasn't you who sent me, God did it. And Joseph makes clear his forgiveness for them. And he acknowledges God's perfect plan in all of this. Now, friends, I don't want you to get me wrong here. I don't want you to think I'm saying that this is easy. And I don't think it was easy for Joseph. You've got to understand here, this, it had been 22 years. It took God 22 years to build this kind of character into Joseph, whereby he could look at the situation and say, you sold me, but God sent me. And he sends them back to their families, says, go get your families, go get our father, and come here. I'm in charge here, there's plenty of food for everyone. Come here and live with me and live near me and let's reconnect and let's, let's be together. And so they do that. And Jacob had several years being reunited with his long-lost son. But then there came a day when Jacob died. The father of the 12 boys, the 12 men, died. Genesis 50 and verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So this is how these guys are thinking. They're thinking, well, boys, it's been a good run. We survived a few more years because we came to Egypt. But I know that Joseph lured us here so that when dad died, which was inevitable because he was old, then he could pay us back. He's going to get us back. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, I love this. These guys knew how to work it. They sent a message to Joseph. Your father gave us this command before he died. Hey, we were talking to dad just before he died, and this is what he said. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, this is them talking, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. They keep tying it back to their dad because they knew the relationship Joseph had with their father. Look what Joseph does. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. You know what I thought of when I read that passage? I don't know if you thought of it too, but when they came to Joseph and they fell down at his feet and said, We are your servants. Did anybody else think of this? 
That was Joseph's dream, right? Remember when he was a 17-year-old kid? Hey, guys, I had a dream. Guess what? You're all going to fall down and worship me. That's what got him thrown in the pit. (laughs) Right? That was Joseph's dream. And so here's a guy that for 22 years has been suffering and remembering, knowing what his brothers did to him. And now they are falling down and they're worshiping. And you know what? He could have said, You guys remember? This was the dream. This is it. And now we're here. But notice what Joseph says in chapter 50, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. You know what the word meant there means? It carries with it the idea to think about and to plan. And friends, this morning as we try to wrap our minds around what all of this means for us in this harsh, cruel world that we live in, we need to be thinking about God's plan and understanding that what the world means what other people mean, what they plan for, what they purpose, what they intentionally do to make evil in our lives or to cause pain in our lives. God is thinking about those things and He is intending them for our good. They're not random. They're not meaningless. To bring about that many people would be kept alive. And often, of course, we fear God. We fear what He is going to do. We fear what comes next. Because we just don't know. We just don't know. So, why do we have to suffer? Why does God allow these things to happen? Or even we read some places in the Scripture Not only does God allow these things to happen, but God causes these things to happen. I want to suggest to you this morning that it is because God's greatest desire is our good. God's greatest desire is our good. Now, don't check out. Don't say, I've heard this before. I was hoping for more. I know. I know the verse. I know Romans 8.28. All things work together for good. Don't check out because there's more. God's greatest desire is your good. 
Now follow along with me this train of thought that we've been on the past couple of weeks. And your good is found only in absolute surrender to God. And absolute surrender to God involves complete self-denial. And complete self-denial requires true desperation for God. And true desperation for God comes only through suffering. That's a lot, isn't it? But that's why. That's why God allows suffering in our lives because he desires our good, but our good can only be found in complete surrender to him and to his will and to his plan. But we can't surrender like that until we come to the place of complete self-denial. And that is so difficult. And we only ever get to the point where we are willing to completely deny ourselves. Oh, we'll deny ourselves a few things here or there, a little bit in this area or a little bit in that area. But complete self-denial only comes when we are desperate. And we are truly at the point of desperation. Only when we face suffering. I was having a conversation this week with somebody who has been here the last couple of weeks. And they said something about, uh, I guess last week I called it the big answer a couple of times. And they said, this Sunday, the big answer, right? (laughs) And I said, yep. We're going to talk about it. And then they paused for a second and, and the person said, but you've been kind of giving it to us the last two weeks, right? You've been kind of giving us part of the answer, right? Yes. Yes, I have. Because two weeks ago, we talked about believing in the God of Scripture, believing that He is big enough and powerful enough and loves us enough to take all of the good and the evil in this world, all of the good and bad things that happen in our lives and weave them together into something that will ultimately be beautiful. And I know that when we hear that, we sit there and say, I don't think that's possible because if you could see what's happening in my life right now, it's anything but beautiful. In fact, it's hideous. It's putrid. It's vile. We have to believe in the God of the Bible. We have to believe that he is big enough and powerful enough and loves us enough to do that. And that he wants your good, that he wants the ultimate best for you. Not, and this is why it's so difficult, not that he wants the most comfort for you right now, but that he wants the best for you ultimately. And many times we lose it right there, don't we? (laughs) You can look at that whole thing. You can say, well, you already lost me there because it's clear that God doesn't want me to want my good because I don't even think God loves me. I mean, look at how this is happening. How could God even love me with this happening? 
This is where we have to remind ourselves that what is true in the light is still true in the dark. And that is that God does love us, that God does love you. He perfectly and wonderfully, incredibly demonstrated that at Calvary when he allowed his son to suffer and bleed and die so that we could be a part of his family so that we don't have to pay the ultimate price for our sin in hell. That's where God ultimately and completely demonstrated his love for us, and we have to settle in our hearts and our minds once for all that that doesn't change, that he loves us. And then last week we talked about climbing out of the pit of self-focus and surrendering to God. You see, remember, we can't see anything when we're in that pit. We can't see anything else that's going on. We have to surrender to God. We have to give him control of our lives. And think of it this way, guys. What egos that we have to think that we have a better plan for our lives than God does. But that's what we think. That's what we think, right? Because that's how we live. This needs to happen, and then this needs to happen, and then this needs to happen. But absolute surrender to God involves complete self-denial, and that is the toughest thing in the world. It's the toughest thing in the world. Giving up our hopes and dreams, giving up our expectations of what our lives will be like, that's why it's so difficult, isn't it? Because when something devastating happens, when something painful happens, What is most heartbreaking? Yes, what we go through at the moment is heartbreaking for sure, but even more heartbreaking than that is looking ahead and saying, that's not what I wanted my life to look like. I wanted it to look like this, and now it never can. And the only way that we can get to the point of being able to deny self even in that aspect of our lives is to have a true desperation for God as in nothing else will do but God. Paul got to that point in Philippians chapter 3. If you read that sometime, Paul lists all of the things about his life that were true and that should have been comforting. And should have been giving him security about his future and about his plans and his life and his goals. And Paul listed all of these things and then you know what he said? He said, all of that is garbage except knowing Christ. And we think about the Apostle Paul and we think, that guy had it all together. He had it all together. I mean, to write that. But Paul walked his own life of pain and suffering and difficulty. And it took him a while to get to that point. You know how I know that? I know that because the Scripture tells us that in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, or chapter 12, rather, where Paul says, I had this 
pain, the suffering that I'm dealing with, that I was dealing with, and three separate occasions, I begged God to take it away. Why, God? Why this pain? Why the suffering? And God said to him, the only way you're truly going to know me the way that you need to is if I allow you to continue to endure this, to get your mind off yourself and onto what I have for you. And that's the verse that so many of us have heard before. My grace is sufficient for you. Paul walked through it. And this is where God wants us. He wants us to want him more than anything. It's in this place of wanting him desperately that we can see beyond ourselves. We can see beyond our plans. We can see his good, his purpose, his kingdom. That's the place where we really see God. And you can say, yes, that's it. I want to hear from God. I want to know his voice. I want to see his plan. I want to believe that his greatest desire is my good. I want to surrender to him fully. I want to deny myself. I want to be like Paul. I want to be desperate for him. But the only way to get there is through suffering. You know why? Because we have this incredible, resilient, indomitable self-preservation instinct. And you can say, I want to be desperate for God. You can say, I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. You can say it, you can say it, you can say it. But we just have this thing built inside of us that we just do whatever it takes to protect ourselves. And the only way that we can break through that is through suffering. And God allows us to be pushed, to be pushed, to be pushed, where we finally say, I get it. I can't do it. I can't do this. None of this can happen without you, God. God's ways are always good. But you've got to wrestle with it before you can rest in it. Nobody hears this stuff and says, yep, got it. Thank you. Woo! Aren't you glad I gave you the big answer? Now it's clear sailing. Now you've got to wrestle with it. You've got to wrestle with it. You've got to look down inside and see where you are in this whole process. That's why I begged you two weeks ago not to just easily and flippantly say, yep, I believe that God's good enough and big enough, loves me enough, da-da-da, everything else that you said. Yep, that's the God I believe in. Don't you can't say that easily. You've got to wrestle with it. To climb out of your pit of self-focus and surrender to God, to wave the white flag, that's not an easy thing to do. And you can't just say, yep, I'll do it. You've got to wrestle with it. You've got to understand and be honest with yourself about where you really are. God is drawing you to himself. 
He is going to use all of the events of your life to pull you toward him because he knows that's where you need to be. The story is told years ago of a lumberjack back in the days where they cut trees down with an axe. And the lumberjack walked into the forest and he sharpened the blade of his axe and he prepared to chop down the first tree. And just before he went to start chopping, he looked up in the branches of a tree and he saw a little bird starting to make a nest. And so he took his axe and he just swung it and lightly tapped the base of the tree. And the bird jumped up, flew off to another tree right beside it. Lumberjack was watching and he walked over to that tree and he spun his axe around to the the butt of the head and he swung it a little harder and whacked the tree and the bird flew away again to a third tree. And the lumberjack walked over and he took his axe and he swung it hard and whacked the base of the tree as hard as he could. Over and over and over. Until finally the little bird flew up into the rocks and made its nest up there. And you can imagine what must have been going through the mind of that little bird. Who is this crazy man? What is he doing? Why doesn't he just leave me alone? All I want to do is build my nest. But the lumberjack knew that every tree in that forest was coming down. Friends, listen. In this life, every tree is coming down. No matter where you are making your nest, no matter where you are taking your stand, whether it's in your family, your relationships, your work, your finances, your comfort. It's all coming down. And I know that we don't like to think about it this way, but everything in your life is one stroke of the axe from ruin. That's the nature of this life. Think about those poor folks in Pittsburgh who yesterday morning got up, prepared to spend the day with their friends and family, and who are now making funeral plans. This is life on this earth. Where are you building your nest? Where are you taking your stand? God is desperate for you to be desperate for Him and to build your nest in the one place that will not be ruined, which is Him. And sometimes, to get our attention, it takes a light tap. Sometimes it takes a huge whack. 
What about lost people? What do we say to them about these things when they say, why does God allow these things to happen? Well, the answer is really the same, except they start without the relationship with God. The answer is that there's a creator who loves you and wants to relate to you, but there's no place for him as long as you run your own life. And there's only one place to build a life that's going to last. I could read dozens and dozens of verses for you. I could give you a list as long as your arm of verses that speak to this in the Scripture. But I I just want to leave you with these verses as we close. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. This is what Paul says. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. The only way to truly and fully identify with Christ is through suffering. The only way to fully experience Him, to know the extent of His love and grace and mercy and power is in the crucible of suffering. Oh, we want Him. We want the relationship. We want the benefits. But the only place where we really find the greatness of His grace is when we are desperate and at the end. And so our heart's prayer needs to be more of you. More of you, Father, less of me. I can't do this. God is certainly honored when that is the cry of our hearts. I want to invite you to stand this morning and sing that song with us as we close with the band. Do you remember what Jacob said back in chapter 37? When the boys came, brought him Joseph's coat, covered with blood, he said, it's over. My son is dead. And in his mind, he was thinking, there is no way that this ends well. And yet it did. It did. God wove all of the good and evil together and not only saved the entire nation of Egypt, but saved the entire family of Jacob and continued to fulfill his promise to Abraham. Remember the promise? I'm going to make your nation great. In chapter 37, I don't know if you remember it or not, But the brother who came up with the plan to kill Joseph, you know which one it was? It was Judah. Judah said, we're going to kill this boy and be done with it. And about 2,000 years after Joseph saved the family, there was another baby who was born in Bethlehem in a manger. 
And you know who his direct descendant was? Not Joseph. Judah. And God has used that man, fully God, fully man, to build his church, to save your life, to save my life. That's what God can do. So look, guys, I don't expect you to just swallow all this and say, because Mike said it, it must be true. I'll radically change the way I live my life. you got to wrestle with it before you can rest in it. And there is certainly a good possibility that there are lots of people in this room right now who are saying, this can't end well because of whatever it is that you're in the middle of right now. I get it. But it can. Surrender, self-denial, desperation, knowing the one who controls it out. How can we do it? We can't do it. It's too difficult. I came across this quote this week. Imperfect people can be faithful to God because He is faithful to them. Wow, it all comes back to God, doesn't it? We need God's strength. We need His grace every moment of every day. God, we are desperate for you. That's the heart's prayer of his people that thrills God's heart the most. Father, we stand here this morning. We are broken people because we live in a broken world. And we honestly, maybe even multiple times a day, say this can't end well. But it can because you have the power to weave all of this together into something very beautiful, not just for my life, but for my eternity and for the sake of your kingdom. Continue your work in our hearts, Lord. We lay ourselves bare before you, all of our imperfections, all of our lack, all of our sin. We ask that you would take us and use us in this great plan of yours to do as you will. I pray that as we walk out of this place, that your words would resonate in our hearts, that your truth would change us a little bit more every day to be like your son. Thank you for this time together today. We are grateful for it. In Christ's name, amen. Have a great week, folks.